Thank you, Belinda. Well, we have been uh, moving through the course of the summer in this series entitled Counterfeit Christianity. And at the very beginning of summer, uh, we kicked off this series with an overview. And then every week since then, for the most part, uh, we have been looking at a different group that some would say is a cult group. Uh, Others would would use the terminology counterfeit Christian. Uh, And we've been looking at a different group each week, and then we've been pulling out from each of those groups one primary uh, belief that they would hold, and we've sifted it through biblical Christianity. And so really, in a sense, this has kind of been a a backdoor way through the course of the summer, kind of uh, subversive, right? I've snuck this in on you, where we've been teaching what Scripture has to say, uh, what biblical Christianity's view is on a lot of major doctrines, who God is, what the Bible is, who Jesus is, salvation, sin, all those kinds of things. And yet we've done it against the backdrop of different belief systems, cult groups, counterfeit Christian groups. Now, we call it counterfeit Christianity because in a, for most every single group we've looked at, if you were to ask them, are you Christian, they're going to say, yes, we are. In many instances, they themselves as individuals would, and also the group in general would consider itself to be a Christian group, despite the fact that they really have navigated uh, away from normative biblical Christian beliefs. And so that's what we've been doing through the course of this series. I've probably had more comments on this series than any other series that I've, that I've gone through in the course of 13 years here, and, uh, and yet it's probably been one of the most difficult to preach, not because of the subject matter, but just because there's so much, incre- an incredible amount of material to try to cover, and so uh, uh, counterfeit Christianity is what we've been looking, looking through through the course of this summer. Well, for a lot of you, you've missed some, right? There are vacations. I was out for a week at one point. You know, you have different uh, um, things that are going on in the course the summer that makes summer very busy. Some of you have missed. If you have missed, you can catch any of these messages on our website. But just as an overview, just kind of as a, as a recap, really, I'd like to take a few minutes this morning just to go through some of the high points of what we've covered up to this point. Not going through all the details of what all the different groups are. Uh, you, can, you can catch that on our website again and the messages there. But really hitting the high points as a recap of what biblical Christianity teaches. And then towards the close of the message this morning, what I want to do is introduce one more group and, uh, and then pull out one of their doctrines as well to see where biblical Christianity stands regarding that one particular doctrine. So here's where we started back at the very beginning of summer after we did an overview we looked specifically at what biblical Christianity's view is of the Bible. And the group that we looked at specifically was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's betterly, or, uh, more commonly known, betterly, <laughs> betterly known as the Mormons, more commonly known as the Mormons. And so here's just kind of the high point, you, you see on the overhead, of what we covered regarding the biblical Christian view of the Bible. One, it's an authoritative book that teaches objective truth. This is where we find it. This is, this is, uh, uh, this is the book. 66 smaller books uh, which are uh, compiled uh, together and they form one big book called the Bible. And and biblical Christianity teaches that it's an authoritative book. It is our authority. Uh, The reason we introduced the Mormons at this point was because they have four different works of authority that they consider to be authoritative. Biblical Christianity has one and it's called the Bible. And so it's an authoritative book. Second, we saw that it's written by God. God claims all the way through the pages of Scripture to have written the Bible. The prophet said, thus says the Lord. Jesus considered the Old Testament to be God's Word. It is not only authoritative, but it is God's Word to us, still completely, totally applicable today. It is a book that can be trusted. But God chose to write His book, His Word, 
through men. And so it reads differently than any other book that you'll ever read. It's going to carry kind of the, the personality of the human writers. Even though God wrote it, it's without error. We can trust it. It does read uniquely. It's supported more by, by more hard evidence than any other work in antiquity. There is no other book in existence out of antiquity that has more evidence to support uh, its integrity than Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. And, and again, of course, in that message, we unpacked all of this. We blew it out really wide, and we, we, uh, we dug into all these points. But then also, the Bible is one story. It's one story of one God who ultimately came in the person of Jesus Christ. He sent his son to die one death. He rose one time from the dead for all people for all time. And so Scripture is our authority, and it gives God's story for us to be aware of. And so we unpacked that, really, as we looked at the group called the Mormons. The next week, we looked at the New Age movement. And because of the New Age movement's views of who God is, which is somewhat all over the map, we began to, uh, to look at, that particular week, the, doc, the biblical Christian view of who God is. Here's some of what we came up with. God is eternal, number one. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. God is without beginning and without end. So God is eternal. God is also creator. Everything that you see, everything you can touch, God created. He breathed it into existence. You know, we're getting pictures back from Pluto now, right? God put it there. Nothing's going to surprise God. You know, he's not going to, hey, I didn't know this was there. Uh, he knows all about it. He put it there. He's kept it there ever since he put it there. And so God is the creator. But God at the same time is distinct from his creation. This is real important when you study cult groups, counterfeit Christian groups, because they'll often, as the New Age movement does, will we'll try to uh, help you to understand that you carry a spark of divinity inside of you, that you are like a little God, little G, running around this universe, and one day you may be a big God with a big G. And that's kind of the, 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 the teaching that they promote. It's real important to understand what biblical Christianity teaches. It teaches that God is distinct from his creation. Yes, he did come in the person of Jesus and live life in this creation. Yes, he oversees creation. Yes, he often uh, uh, has work to do within creation. I mean, he holds everything in his hands. He, he uh, you know, pulls strings and he accomplishes his will. But God is distinct from his creation. We don't worship his creation because it is somehow a part of who he is. He's distinct from his creation. God is also Trinity. In other words, he is one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We just sung about that. And there's a reason. That's biblical Christian doctrine. It's biblical Christian views. And then God is also personal. Uh, this one's important because when you're talking to a counterfeit Christian or a, you know, a cult member standing on your doorstep, they have no understanding really of the personal aspect of what it means to know God. They've just never been there. They've read about him. They've been told things that they're supposed to believe, uh, but they don't know him if they've never come to him through Jesus. And so for you to be able to say, you know what, I have a personal relationship with God. He bailed me out when I was at rock bottom here, or he blessed me whenever I was in need here. You know, for you to be able to say that kind of thing, th that shows that God is personal. You have a personal relationship with him through Christ. And then six, we saw that God reigns and God rules. He is not sharing his throne with anybody. You know, he, he is not, you know, in any, you know, no way, shape, or form, he does not desire to be a co-pilot, regardless of what bumper stickers say. You know, he is the pilot. He made the plane. He made the one who flies the plane. And uh, he would rather that person take a back seat and just let him, you know, steer life. Okay, so God is the one who reigns. God is the one who rules, not only over this world, but he desires to do that on an individual level in every person's life through Christ. And so we looked at the biblical Christian view, ultimately, of God. The following week, we looked at a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we unpacked what the view is biblically of who Jesus is. 
Some of the high points of what we hit was that Jesus is eternal. Again, he is God, and so he is eternal. There was not a beginning place for Jesus, though the Jehovah's Witnesses would believe that and propagate that. Yes, he had an entrance into this world where he was born of Mary and started his human life, but that was not his beginning. Jesus is eternal. We also saw that he died as a sacrifice for our sins, as a substitute. He took your place on the cross. And when he died for our sins, he took the place that we rightly deserve to be on. We deserve to be dying in payment for our sins before God who is holy. And yet Jesus, out of his love and his grace and his mercy, he took our place. So he was our substitute. He was our sacrifice. He, wrote, he died physically. He rose again physically. He's going to come back again physically. The, the, the position of biblical Christianity is just that, that Jesus came for us and he's coming back again as well. We also looked at how Scripture testifies that Jesus is God, that the prophets prophesied that. His works prove it. He did things that only God could do on this earth. Uh, The words of other people prove it. Thomas, remember we talked about this, uh, doubting Thomas whenever he saw Jesus resurrected in Scripture, quoted as saying, my Lord and my God. The Greek word there shows that Thomas understood Jesus to be God. Jesus didn't correct him. He didn't say, whoa, what do you think? I'm not God. No, he, he accepted that. Jesus accepted worship. No good, moral Jewish man would have ever accepted worship. Jesus openly accepted it, even encouraged it. And then his claims about himself, right? He claimed to be God. And though there may be some, some uh, counterfeit Christian groups that will say Jesus never made that claim, yes, he did. That's why the Jews, bla- that's why they crucified him, because, because they thought he'd committed blasphemy by claiming to be, to be God. And so Jesus is God. Scripture affirms that. It's the biblical Christian view. And then he alone is the way to a relationship with God. There is no other way. He said it himself. Christianity is extremely exclusive. It is not inclusive. Y'all come and everybody, regardless of what you do or what you believe, can come on and let's just jump the train together and go on and be with God. It is not. It is a very exclusive belief system Christianity is. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? He said, you've got to have a relationship with me, Jesus would say about himself, if you're going to have a relationship with God. And so we looked at what Scripture teaches about the person of Jesus. The next week, we looked at a group called the Church of Scientology. Probably the least known group, perhaps, of any that we've looked at. Maybe maybe the one after this was the, 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 the least. But Church of Scientology, a lot of you have heard of it, but not a lot of people really know what goes on there. Um, again, that message is on the website. I won't unpack all those details. But what we looked at against the backdrop of that group was the doctrine of the biblical Christian view of sin, that it is our greatest problem, greater than any other problem we face, relationally, financially, uh, career-related. Sin is our greatest problem. We saw from a biblical Christian view that at its core, sin is rebellion against God on a personal level. It's not just an impersonal, general disobedience. It is a personal rebellion against God that when we sin, we are choosing as an act of our will to go against God's authority and to implement our authority above his. And it is rebellion of the highest order against the God who created us. Sin results in death. Uh, The wages of sin is death. Something dies every time we sin in regards to our fellowship with God. That has to be restored. The Bible says that if we confess our sins as Christians, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness, but when we disobey against God, when we rebel against Him, it does something to our fellowship, just the same way as when you as a child would disobey against your parents, and you knew you did wrong, and you weren't really quick to go running and jumping into their lap that night because you knew you'd been, you know, you'd done wrong, and, and you wanted to avoid their fellowship. That's what sin does. It kills our fellowship with God, and it warrants ultimate uh, payment, you know, really, for those who don't have their sin forgiven. It justifies, uh, it justifies an eternity without God, as we'll see in a second. Sin can never be managed. If we think we've got sin in its own little compartment, and I can do my thing on this weekend over here, I can do my thing at work over here and kind of do it my way, not God's way, or maybe I've got my leisure time or my internet time, I can kind of do whatever I want, and you know, God doesn't really apply there. I'm managing my sin. You know, I'm okay. I still love God. I still go to church. I still pray, but I've got my sin under control. We are deceived because sin cannot be managed. It cannot be managed. By its very nature, it is designed, its nature is to take over. And then the last thing we saw is that the remedy for sin is to eliminate it. You know, that's the beauty of the cross, isn't it? You know, that Jesus died for our sin. He died to take away our sin. And in John 1, when he's coming, walking along, what does John the Baptist say? He points to him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world. And so through Christ, we have our sin problem dealt with. We have it addressed. We have sin removed. And that's our, that, that's our impetus, really. That is our motivation for living a life of holiness before God because he paid for it for us. He paid for our sin in our place. So we looked at what sin is. And then last week, we uh, looked at a group called the Unity School of Christianity. Christianity right in their name. There's one uh, specific uh, church here in Savannah that's a Unity, a unity Church. Uh, and what we looked at was the biblical view of salvation and the biblical view of life after death. Uh, what we found was in Scripture was that our existence does not cease at the point of our physical death. That when we breathe our last and our life ends, many different cult groups will tell you that there are a variety of things happen. Scripture teaches us that we do not cease to exist. That we either open our eyes on the other side in the presence of God or we open our other eyes on the other side separated from the presence of God. We saw that heaven and hell are literal places. Many cult groups will say that they're not literal. They will, uh, they will say that they're just merely states of mind in this world. You know, you, you kind of experienced heaven on this earth or hell on this earth. What biblical Christianity teaches is that heaven and hell are literal places. They are real places inhabited by real existing people who are conscious of their surroundings. That's what biblical Christianity affirms. And what we also saw, and this is perhaps one of the most important ones, is that both heaven and hell both are justified because of the nature of God. A lot of people, even Christians, will try to argue against the uh, existence of hell because they say it doesn't line up with God's nature. But what biblical Christianity teaches is that heaven makes perfect sense because God is a God of love and God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy, isn't he? And so heaven makes perfect sense. But what we sometimes fail to realize, some do, that hell also lines up perfectly with God's nature because of his justice and because of his holiness and because he is a God who is truth. And so sin has to be dealt with. And any judge that doesn't deal with sin rightly is a judge that's considered to be corrupt. And so God has to deal with sin. The beauty is he dealt with it on the cross through Christ. But for those who don't know Christ, choose not to accept Christ, then ultimately there's an understanding that hell is also justified because of the ugliness of sin and because of the beauty of God's own holiness because of his justice. And then we also saw, lastly, that our eternal destination is determined solely by what we do with the person of Jesus. I don't understand how a person can claim to be a follower of Christ 
and not come down on the right side with that one. But Scripture makes it so incredibly clear that whether we spend eternity in heaven or whether we spend eternity in hell are only determined by what we do with the person of Jesus. Not how good we live, not how long we were in church, not what country we're a part of, not our Christian heritage. You know, mom and dad were Christians or our grandparents were missionaries. None of that matters. The only thing that determines where we spend eternity is what we do with the person of Jesus, whether we turn from our sin that separates us and yield our lives to Christ or whether we choose to go it alone in some other way. And so that's kind of the quick recap. That's what we've looked at. It's not so much about the cult groups. You know, please hear me on that. It's not so much. That's interesting. It's fascinating. It's helpful to know what they believe so that we can speak truth into those that we meet. But the most important thing is what Scripture teaches, what God shows us about the views of biblical Christianity. And that's what we've been looking through. So let me give you the group we're going to look at this morning. And then we'll jump in and dive in and look a little bit at them and then one specific doctrine as well. This morning I want us to look at a group called the Unitarian Universalist Association. That's a mouthful there. The Unitarian Universalist Association. Uh, it's called an association, but they will have local churches set up, uh, primarily here in the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, there's one here actually in our own city. How many of you have ever heard of the Unitarian Universalist Church? Let me see your hands. More than in the first service. The first service, I didn't know if they were quite even awake yet in the first service. Now, they just kind of seemed like they just sort of rolled out of bed and they didn't have a clue. You know, you know, you know what? <laughs> yeah, uh, Probably half here, I guess, have raised your hands. Unitarian Universalist Association. Here in our city, the local version of it is downtown. It's on Habersham Street, Troop Square. Uh, it's also known as the Jingle Bell Church. You heard of the Jingle Bells Church? Any of you heard of that? If you're a history buff in Savannah, I, I don't, you know, I didn't see this necessity preparing for this message so much, but I think the story is that the, the, the uh, one-time pastor of that church, the Unitarian Universalist Church in Savannah, the one-time pastor of that, his brother, James Pierpont, I believe is his name, is the one who wrote Jingle Bells. And so that's kind of the tie into Savannah. They got a big historical plaque there. People get their pictures made. Hey, it's a Jingle Bell church. Uh, really, it's a Unitarian Universalist church. And again, it's downtown on Troop Square. Counterfeit Christian for a reason. Um, uh, counterfeit because of the things that they believe and affirm or affirm. Um, uh, Christian because of some things I'll share with you here in just a few moments. They are a church, and they do have a church-like uh, structure, and um, in many cases would affirm things that you would hold as a believer. Here's their history. Their, their history really goes way back to uh, the Age of Enlightenment, to Europe, but here in our own country, about 1825, is when the Unitarian Church really kind of was planted and really began. Uh, interestingly, it played a formative part in a number of our early presidents. In fact, five of our former presidents, way back in our history, claimed to be Unitarian. They professed to be Unitarian in regards to their belief system. And so there's a certain tie-in even with our own history. Basically, when you look at this particular church, they were Unitarian in 1825, but in 1961, uh, 50 years or so ago roughly, I guess, they uh, also merged in with the Universalist Church, and so they then became the Unitarian Universalist Association, the UUA. And, uh, and so that, that's kind of their, their inroad, so to speak, to our own country. That church is largely a U.S. and Canada kind of a thing. It's not large. It's not, uh, you know, there are a, a lot of different churches spread out across North America. But it's not something that you really see predominant anywhere else outside of our country. Again, the roots go to the European Enlightenment, but the, the Unitarian Universalist, as we know it, is pretty much here in our own country. 
Uh, an interesting figure, interesting fact about that, that particular church is that almost 50%, a survey that was done in 1990, 49.5% of those that are a part of that, the Unitarian Universalist Church are college graduates. They're at the very top of the heap when it comes to the sociological ladder, if you want to call it that. Um, a lot of college graduates there, that are there, uh, very well educated. A lot of academia is represented in the uh, Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, there was a study that was done, a, a, uh, a survey that was done in 1997 that I think really helps us to understand more about this particular group, this particular church. Let me just share, you some, share with you some statistics. This was a 1999 survey of 8,000 Unitarian Universalist church members, if you want to call it that. Uh, they were self-proclaimed Unitarian Universalist, uh, 8,000 of them. They were given a survey, and they would describe themselves. This was how they self-described themselves. So of that group of the 8,000, 46% of them self-described as humanist. Uh, many of whom also self-described as atheist or agnostic. Atheist meaning we have researched this and we do not believe in God, agnostic that says, oh, we don't really know, so we're not going to say we believe in him. 50, almost 50%, 46% of this church. Now imagine walking in here, all right, or if you're in from out of town, you go back to your own local church where you, where you live. Imagine walking in and knowing on any given Sunday that 46 out of 100 are humanist, atheist, or agnostic. Humanists meaning they have put themselves elevated beyond God if they do believe in him. Atheists and agnostics speak for themselves. Almost half of their membership, according to the survey, would completely discredit who God is and perhaps not even believe in him at all. 55% in that survey self-described as being either nature-centered, earth-centered, new age, Buddhist, Hindu, or some other belief system. Over half And yet, you'll still find their church in a local city. You'll walk in, and there'll still be a service that's conducted. They're going to have their own leadership, and they're going to, you know, they're going to be involved in their day-to-day function, much like a church would here, even even this one, despite what they specifically believe. Nine and a half percent in that survey self-described themselves as Christian which is shocking from two different directions. One, that this is a place that would be called a church for the most part, universal, Unitarian Universalist, they've got a church building, uh, and yet not even quite 10% would self-describe themselves as being Christian. Uh, that, that's, there's the counterfeit part. Um, but then at the same time, it makes me wonder, how could someone who describes himself as Christian be a part of an ongoing worship and, and, and ministry, so to speak, where 90% don't describe themselves that way, and many are doing things blatantly against truth that is in God's Word. And so that, I don't know if that's shocking for you. That was just really incredibly shocking for me. So uh, 98% of their uh, demographic is white. Uh, that's neither good nor bad. That's just simply a distinct, a distinct aspect of that particular uh, group. Uh, 98% white. They don't really necessarily launch out to try to diversify except in regards to beliefs. When you look at what they believe, they are much like going to a buffet. As a buffet is to food, the Unitarian Universalist Church is to spirituality. Everything is welcome. It doesn't matter whether you believe 
uh, as a Hindu or as a Buddhist or as a New Ager or as a Christian, the doors are open. Come on, not just attend, but you are one of us. We are all one heading the same direction. And largely today for this specific group, they are defined and known more for their act- activities in regards to uh, uh, social uh, activism as well as political uh, and environmental issues and also gender-related issues. That's kind of where, that, that's the wheelhouse for them, is that they're very actively involved in a lot of those types of issues as opposed to seeking to impact the world for the sake of the gospel, for the cause of Christ. So let's just look real quickly at some of what they believe. In fact, believe would be the wrong word by their own admission. They claim to have no creed. They have no formal belief system. If you were to ask them, what do you believe? They would say more than likely, we don't really believe. We just affirm certain things. So, uh, so what do they affirm in regards to God? Here, here's some of what they would affirm. They would be where they believe in God. Again, almost half of them don't. But where they believe in God, again, it would be a Unitarian, not a Trinitarian view. Biblical Christianity teaches one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a reason that's called Trinitarian, try. Unitarian would just simply believe one God. To believe that, you would then have to kick to the curb the deity of Jesus and the deity of the Holy Spirit, okay? And so there is a Unitarian belief in regards to how they view God if they believe in God at all. It would not be a surprise to be a part of a Unitarian Universalist church and find that they speak of God in a variety of ways. He may be spoken of as God, as God little g, as goddess little g. There would be a variety of terms that could be used to describe their understanding of God again, and that just doesn't line up with biblical Christianity. Uh, When you look at the person of Jesus, they would see Jesus as a good person. They would see Jesus as a moral person, figure who lived in history, but they would see Jesus as less than God. They wouldn't hold him out to be God the way that Scripture speaks of him. And so they would, uh, they would take away from the deity specifically of Jesus, the virgin birth, the resurrection, anything supernatural, they're going to discount and just completely do away with it. It's of no importance whatsoever. Um, Again, because of their views of God and a number of other different doctrines. I mean, the supernatural just doesn't, it doesn't take root for them. It's, it's something that is not accepted. It's not embraced. They would view man as being basically good. They would see man as being in no need of forgiveness, in no need of redemption. Uh, they would see salvation as coming when you achieve self-actualization. Okay? So it's not when you find the Savior, Jesus, and have forgiveness. You achieve salvation, they see, when you realize who you are, um, why you're here, and you begin to see the whole big picture of your existence. And so salvation is much differently viewed than from biblical Christianity's perspective. Life after death, again, would be, if they were filling out a chart, they would put N-A. <laughs> it's not applicable. Life after death is just a non-option. Uh, many would not believe in it. Almost all Unitarian Universalists would... would uh, uh, would completely disagree with the whole notion of the existence of hell. Uh, they don't view that it would be there. In fact, Unitarian, Universalist, the Universalist side of their name, originally pointed towards a belief that everybody would be going to heaven. It's, a, it's called Universalism, that everyone's going to heaven, no one's going to go to hell, disagree with hell, hell doesn't exist, everyone's going to heaven. That's kind of where the Universalist side came from in their title. More recently, that Universalist title has really stretched out more to speak more of a 
belief in a universal world religion, just one world religion. It's called pluralism. Uh, and that's why they can embrace all kinds of belief systems and say, come on in, you're one of us, regardless of what your belief system is. You know, you're, you're one of us today if you choose to come and to be a part of this. And so life after death, they just wouldn't hold to it wouldn't believe in it, wouldn't have any position on it. And where they do hold to it, they would hold to reincarnation, which you've already looked at as being something that biblical Christianity doesn't support at all. So what about their authority? What is their authority? You know, for the Christian, we find that God has authority, all authority. Jesus would say in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? So God holds all authority. And we would find that his book, the Bible, is also, also authoritative for all of life. For the person who would be a part of the Universalist, Unitarian Universalist Association, they would say that no book is our authority. God certainly would not be our authority from their view. They would say that reason is our authority, the reason of man. You see, there's an interesting link between their view of what is authoritative and the fact that 49.5% of their, those involved with them are college graduates. It is a, an academia view. It's an it's a, it's a, uh, advanced learning. It's an enlightenment view of the solution to man's problem. Now, you know, I'm not saying that academics are are wrong. I mean, I've certainly spent enough time in that. I'm hopefully done with that, but uh, I'm not saying that teachers are wrong. You, you know that. What I'm saying is, is that their understanding of our authority being the reason of man is completely faulty. When you hold it up against biblical Christianity, you find that biblical Christianity tells us something vastly different. And really, what it, what it does is, is it brings to the surface a question that has been asked for ages that we have to answer for ourselves. And that is the question of truth. Jesus was in conversation with a man named Pilate at the end of his ministry, just before his crucifixion. Jesus would be walking through a variety of uh, trials before his crucifixion. And in one such trial, he stood before the man from a human perspective that could have set him free. And his name was Pilate. Jesus has a conversation with Pilate in John 18. Read with me on the overhead and look at the scope of this conversation. Pilate said to him, said to Jesus, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate asked him a question that has been asked by people ever since. He simply says to him these three words, what is truth. In our culture today, we find that truth is up for grabs. Truth is up for debate. Not only in our own culture, but in every culture that has existed, truth has been grappled with, truth has been dealt with, sometimes in very good, positive ways, sometimes in very dangerous and destructive ways. The question that we have to answer is, is truth definitive? Is truth absolute? Or is truth fluid? Does truth change with the circumstances? Does truth change with the ages? Does truth change from situation to situation and from person to person? In fact, where does truth even begin? 
Is there a person? Is there a, uh, is there a, a place? Is there a thing in existence that embodies and defines truth for us? Or are we just left on this journey called life where we have to uncover and decide truth for ourselves? And the question that Pilate asked, what is truth, is a question that has been asked for centuries. I would say perhaps even from the very beginning of man. And I would say that in our own country today, we have seen this so clearly in these last 30 days or so as the whole topic of the Supreme Court vote on same-sex marriage has begun to play itself out. So using that as an example, what we're looking at is the topic of truth. How does a person define truth, and what does a person do with truth once truth is found? Now, you're, I'm, sure, I'm sure, certain, aware, that you're aware of the Supreme Court vote here in the last 30 days or so regarding same-sex marriage. So using that as an example, let's just use that as a case study because it's, a, it's an excellent case study, I think, for us to look at this. The Supreme Court voted five to four basically to redefine marriage as being allowable and as being normative for those of the same sex, not just a husband, wife, male, female, but also what we would call same-sex marriage. So the Supreme Court voted, the issue was on the table, and as they weighed their vote, the five that voted in affirmation of it that set this now as normative for our country basically voted based on personal desire, correct, based on the norms of culture, where our culture was headed, where other cultures have gone, and based on perceived personal rights for people. Okay, so you've got one side that say same-sex marriage is allowable, same-sex marriage is worthy of celebration because human rights, personal rights have been affirmed and recognized because personal choice has weighed heavier than any other person's opinion. This is what these people, this is what this culture wants. And so we've affirmed this. The Supreme Court, you know, made their vote. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people, many of whom are followers of Christ, who say that truth is not up for debate based on personal rights, based on personal desire, or based on any person's culture. But rather, truth is defined by someone, by something else. And that is the heart of this debate as it relates to same-sex marriage. So let's just take a look at some of the issues regarding truth. Let's just look at what biblical Christianity teaches specifically about truth. And we'll use same-sex marriage as a case study because my understanding would be that biblical Christianity would have an awful lot to say in objection to same-sex marriage. And here's, here, here are many of the reasons why. Number one, true, we have to understand that truth decays whenever God and his word are redefined. Truth decays. Whenever God is redefined and repackaged, you hear sometimes people will say, well, you have your God and I've got my God. You'll hear people say, well, the God of Islam is the same God of Christianity. And it's almost this view that, you know, God is whoever you want him to be. And there's an inherent problem with that because Scripture teaches us, Scripture as our authority teaches us that God has already revealed himself for who he is. God has already revealed himself exactly, precisely in 66 books for who he is. 
He's already told us clearly exactly who he is. And when we begin to try to redefine who God is, or when we begin to try to redefine his word, the, 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 the scripture, the Bible, when we try to redefine all that and move the boundaries and try to you know, modernize it and fit it into a, a, a modern context, when we try to, to, to tinker with it and make it fit into a 21st century model, whenever we try to do that, we get ourselves in trouble because truth begins to decay when God is re- redefined or when his word is redefined. Now here, here's a couple of passages of scripture. Look, look at what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling, and then how does it describe scripture? It says, accurately handling the word of truth. And so the Bible describes itself as being God's word, a word of what? Of truth. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying here. Notice what he says. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, he prays to the Father, the only true God. It is the essence of the nature of God that he is true. He is not duplicitous. He doesn't say one thing and do another. He doesn't jerk the rug out from under you. Jesus was the most honest speaking person that ever walked this earth. And yes, it got him in a lot of hot water. Yes, it got him in trouble. Yes, it got him ultimately crucified for speaking the truth. But However, when we see uh, uh, however many people in history that will ultimately make their way to heaven through a relationship with him because he spoke the truth, it will have been far worth the cost. God is truth. Scripture is truth. That's the way God describes himself. That's the way Scripture describes itself is truth. And when we begin to tinker with with this aspect of truth, when we begin to try to move the boundaries, when we begin to try to redefine it, what happens is truth decays. Truth begins to erode. Truth ultimately begins to fall apart in our culture and lives with it. If you look at Scripture as well, from a biblical Christian view, we find that God also and His Word set the standard for truth. Truth is not described by any person on television. Truth is not defined by any specific celebrity or athlete. Truth is not defined by any other specific group or any individual church, this one included. Truth is not defined by any figurehead, by any pastor, by any speaker, by any author. Truth is not defined by any of those things. It is God and his word that ultimately set the standard for truth. And if you're building a house, just imagine this for a second. If you're setting out to build a house, say you're adding on a room on the, on the side of your house. If you set out to build this house or this addition, imagine for a moment that you have two different levels with two different standards of level. All right, You've got one level that says this is level, and then you've got another level that you're working with that says, no, that's not level, this is level. Imagine building a house with two different definitions and standards of level. When the work is done and the building is built, listen, I would not want to walk underneath that roof because it's not going to be inhabitable, it's not going to be safe, and it's not going to be something that you originally desired to accomplish because you can't build a house with two different definitions of level and you cannot build life with two different definitions of truth. We cannot function on a day-to-day basis with two different standards of what is level or of what is true. We cannot do that. And for us to say, well, God's truth says this here, but you know what? In my dating life, I think I'm going to say this is true because this is what everybody's doing. Or in my personal life, or in my thought life, or in my finances, in my marriage, in my relationships, yeah, I know what the Bible says, and I usually do most of that, but you know, I'm going to redefine it and do what I want in these other areas because I think this should be true. 
That is a recipe for a big fat grease fire in our lives. Life cannot sustain, life cannot operate, and it will not hit the bullseye of what God envisioned, what God desires for your life if we operate that way. Listen, if God and His Word do not set the standard of truth for you and for me, we are a sitting duck for whatever sounds good. And that's why we have a series called Counterfeit Christianity. Because our world is filled with a lot of people and none of us are immune who said, you know what, I think this sounds really good. And I think I'm going to become one of them now. Can't do that. Truth doesn't change. We may apply truth in different ways, but the truth doesn't change. And when we begin to tinker with it or redefine it, or just it, ultimately, it and our culture and our lives along with it will pay the consequences. Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, would say in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The third thing, final thing, that I'll point out that biblical Christianity affirms as it relates to truth is that we only walk in truth when we submit to God's authority. We only walk in the truth when we first submit to God's authority. And let me say, understand, all of us, that the reverse is also true. That when we do not walk in truth, when we disobey, when we move the boundaries, when we redefine truth, that can only happen when we first rebel against God's authority and place ourselves above him. That is what classic disobedience is. We've all done it. We like to whitewash it, sweep it under the rug, say it something less. But whenever we do not walk in truth, we ultimately are failing to submit. We are rebelling against God's authority. That's why it's such a head-scratcher in the Christian community here recently. Those who would profess to have a strong walk with God. When you look again at this whole case study of same-sex marriage and the Supreme Court's decision, that's why it's such a head-scratcher. I'm not on Facebook um, for a number of different reasons. One, I, I just, it's, well, I'm just, I'm just not on Facebook. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so, so I'm not, I'm not against it. I think it's a great tool. I mean, when you use it well, it's just like a lot of other stuff. You, you can use it good or use it badly. Um, so I'm not against it for any of the reasons you, you might have just thought I meant, but I'm just not on Facebook, but, but you kind of hear stories and, and I see it from time to time. And, you know, it, and, and what's been interesting is to hear stories of, of people who profess a close walk with God that in the context of this whole same-sex marriage kind of against the backdrop of this whole Supreme Court decision have now sort of like flip-flopped in a way. And, and you know, they're, they're, you know they're, they're waving the flags and just kind of affirming, you know, the, this decision that Supreme Court marriage and uh, the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage. And, and it's kind of a head-scratcher in a way because I think the Bible is very clear. It doesn't give us right or reign or reason to be hateful towards anyone or to be... Um, uh, mean-spirited towards anyone. It doesn't give us right to do that, but there is a place where we have to understand what truth is, and I think the Bible is very clear 
that when it comes to marriage, all the way back to Genesis and all the way through the New Testament, that God created us male and female, and marriage is, a, is an institution that God created, God instituted, between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. I, that's very clear. There's it's really not a whole lot of wiggle room there. But it's been interesting to see you know, blogs and just Facebook and stuff, just everything, where there have been a, quite a few Christians that have, have suddenly kind of jumped on the bandwagon now of same-sex marriage, and, and it's been very affirming and, and those kinds of things. It's just been interesting. And, and so here, here's the question for me. I, I came across an article written by a fellow named Kevin DeYoung who asked some really hard questions, and, and understand that I'm not bringing these out, and, and the article wasn't even written with this intent, but I, I'm not putting these questions up here in just a moment to be sarcastic or snarky, you know, or, you know, try to, you know, I've got it all figured out and you don't. I'm not doing this for, for, for any of those reasons, but I am saying that when you look at same-sex marriage and the decision recently of, of, of our Supreme Court and the re, really the response of a lot of Christians that have suddenly just sort of shifted gears and said, yes, I think this is a great thing, I just wonder where the authority of truth is for them. And so these are questions. I mean, you may be one of these that has really kind of shifted gears a little bit. If so, I don't know who you are, so I'm not picking on you. But I think these are valid questions for the Christian community to deal with. And I'm saying the Christian community. First question be, how long have you believed that gay marriage is something to be celebrated? In other words, has it kind of always been a view? Or has your understanding of truth changed because some other people's ideals and views have changed that you admire? It's a legitimate question. Second question, what Bible verses led you to change your mind? You know, because if we really believe that Scripture is our authority, and you may not, you may have some other, you know, authority that you think is going to work better. But if Scripture is our authority, and it certainly paints itself as being the only legitimate authority in our lives, then I think we need to, when we make big decisions regarding marriage, we need to have some passages that help us to have those decisions informed. So I'd be curious to know what verses maybe led you to change your, you know, your status on Facebook or your affirmation or whatever. I'd just be curious to know that. Third question, how would you make a positive case from Scripture that sexual activity between two persons of the same sex is a blessing to be celebrated? Again, if God's truth is our standard, if, if His Word is truth, then, and if that is to inform our decisions and our lives and our motivations and everything about who we are as Christians then I would think that if we make that big of a jump from, from a traditional view of marriage to now same-sex, then there would be some verses and scriptures that we could go to, not dragging them, kicking and screaming out of context you know, that, that would help us to support this. Another slide, another question. If some homosexual behavior is acceptable, then how would you understand the sinful, quote, exchange that Paul highlights in Romans 1? Kind of on the heels of that, the next slide. Next question, when Paul at the end of Romans 1 rebukes those who practice such things and then also those who, quote, give approval to those who practice them, what sins do you think that he has in mind? I think you would have to grapple with that passage and read it in context and read it for what it says very clearly. And then I think it would be hard to perhaps answer this question as one who claims truth based in God's Word. Another question, how would you define marriage? Another question on the heels of this. Next slide. On what basis, of any, would you prevent consenting adults of any relation? And they could be cousins or 
siblings? How would you, what basis would you prevent consenting adults of any relation and of any number from getting married? You know, personally, I believe, and I may be wrong, and I hope I am, but I think the next big debate as it relates to marriage will be um, age of consent. I think that's probably one of the next ones to come along the lines. Uh, Certainly with abortion, that age of consent has been lowered. There are things that students and uh, uh, minors can do without their parents' consent that you would have never imagined a few decades ago. I think probably that age is going to be the next thing on the ballot to be voted on where uh, you'll see age of consent lowered. And I think the next one, I mean, after all, if you can move the boundaries as it relates to male and female, why not move the boundary as to number? You know, what's wrong with two or three husbands or wives? You know, some of you got your hands full with the one you got, I guess. But, um, but what's the, you know, what's the big thing? See, see what I'm saying? It sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? But when you have no basis of truth, when, you, when you're not informed, when we're not informed by God and his word, it is fair game to move the boundaries wherever you want. And that's what I'm talking about. The, the next slide. If love wins, how would you define love? How would you define love? There are a lot of directions we could go with this that I'll just refrain. What verses would you use to establish that definition? Again, what's your basis of truth? Is it personal preference? Is it the culture? Is it personal rights? What verses would you use to establish that definition? And then, if supporting gay marriage is a change for you, has anything else changed in your understanding of faith? Those are questions that I think the Christian community and Christians and specifically down to an individual, would have to grapple with. And I think the way against the backdrop, against the case study of this thing called same-sex marriage and Supreme Court decision, using that as a backdrop in a case study, I think Christians would have to say an awful lot about where our understanding of truth lies based on how we handle that one specific debate. Is it informed by Scripture or is it informed by something less? And if it's not informed by Scripture, then we are a sitting duck for whatever sounds good, for whatever feels good, and for whatever comes next. Man, I'm so glad that when Jesus came, He came as truth. And when He died and when He rose, He paid the penalty for people that aren't so good at walking in truth, just like I'm not so good at walking in truth. I'm glad He paid it all. But when we choose to follow Him, listen, the standard is very high. He doesn't call us to still lead our own lives and just get a little bit of fire insurance till we stand before him. No, he calls us to live a life of surrender to him, to his way, to his word, for his glory. If you don't know him today, man, he stands more than happy and ready and able to take over your life if you'll own your sin, as many of us have, and ask for his forgiveness. And if you've done that, man, I challenge you from this day forward to live your life directed by the very truth of God. For though it will be costly and though you will take shots, listen, he will never lead you astray. Let's pray. God, our world is one big giant Petri dish of how we deal with truth. And Lord, a lot of times what comes out of that dish isn't so pretty. Lord, I thank you that in a sense you've made it very simple for us. You are truth. You came and took our place on the cross. You've given us a book to follow that is the embodiment and the pronouncement of truth. And Lord, though it is costly to do it, especially in this world in which we live, the standard has not lowered. You call us to be people of the word, people of truth. We can do it with a horrible attitude. We can do it acting like we're elitist and better than everyone else. And Lord, completely miss your intent. 
or we can be humble and understand how far we've got to go to be like you and yet at the same time pronounce your word and stand on it boldly the way that you did. And so, God, help us not to miss it here. We miss truth, Lord, and our marriages fall apart. We miss truth, and our kids don't turn out the way that we desired. We miss truth, and we mishandle our finances. We suffer consequences. Everything begins to erode. And so, Lord, help us to live as followers of Christ, as people willing to stand on and proclaim your word in humility and compassion, and to live a life that walks straight in this world that points people to you. Whatever we need to do with this, God, help us to do it. And Father, I pray that for those who don't know you today, that right where they sit this morning, they'll choose as an act of their will to turn from their sin and to invite Jesus, God himself, to come in, to forgive, and take over. And we praise you for what you'll do in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen.